Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. Hello, when Xanadu Kublai Khan had a leopard. Well, it wasn't a leopard, really. It was a cheetah. And upon that fact and many other anecdotes and material objects, Timothy Brook builds a bridge that connects the history of China to the history of the world around it, showing that China has always been in and of the world, and the world has always been coming to China. Timothy Brook is the Republic of China Chair in the Department of History of the University of British Columbia. The general editor of Harvard University Press's series, History of Imperial China, his work has tended to focus on the Ming Dynasty, but he has gone back as far as the Mongol occupation of China and forward as far as the Japanese occupation of China. He is particularly interested in China in the world, as attested to by his most recent book, The Great State, China and the World, published by HarperCollins in 2020, which is the focus of our conversation today. Timothy Brook, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation to um, to have this conversation with you. So um, you begin with a little autobiographical note, very short one. It's not, you know, I don't want to imply that you're, you know, this is this is not a self-indulgent historical semi-autobiographical sort of book. But you say how you first went to China in 1974 and you realized that a, a career as a Chinese historian would involve building bridges between what was then a very distant place in all every sense. And you say that two two bridges remain to be built, quote, between the China of history and the China of now, and between China today and the world. Could you explain those what you mean by those two bridges? Because I I take it this is almost a um, manifesto for the rest of the book. What does it mean to build a bridge for the between the China of history and the China of now? Well, the, the China of history is a, um, in a sense, is a set of stories that we are all to some extent familiar with. The, the China of the emperors, the China of eunuchs, uh, China of vast wealth, the sort of thing that, that captured the excitement of Marco Polo and Christopher Columbus. It's a kind of almost an idealized China that we have a picture of. Um, the China today is... Um, is not a place of the same kind of stories. It's it's a it's a socialist dictatorship in which um, there is both great prosperity and great poverty. There is um, conflict internal and along the borders. China is a, is a somewhat unstable place today, and my feeling is that that first bridge that needs to be built between the past and the present is to try and understand China today as resting on a long history, not as cut off from that history or as having no connection to it, but as as resting on that history. And if we do that, we can begin to see China today in a much more complex way. So that that's the, the first bridge I'm concerned to build. It's partly also a bridge that I want Chinese to work at building. I think Chinese today see themselves in the in the modern world and while they have some idea of Confucianism in the past, they don't they don't really go back to their own traditions and understand who they are and where they've come from. And I think it's important that they do. China is a 
is, is a, a rich and complex civilization and deserves to be part of the world today. I just want That's, to pick up on that. Are, are, do you, are you saying that the Chinese, modern Chinese, uh, feel um, disconnected from their past or oblivious to it? That, that seems um, extraordinary. Well, I think the situation is this, that Chinese today receive a very simplified education about their past. It's an education that is intended to tell them China is great. China has always been great. It's always been unified. It has a longer history than everyone else. It's a kind of a a self-promotional history that doesn't really seek to go back to the past and see, well, what actually happened? So I find that that the Chinese students who come to study in Vancouver, for example, have a very shallow understanding of their own past. And I would like to try and make that past more complex to them, um, more interesting. It's not that um, it's it's you can't simply say, well, Confucius, emperors, there we have China. It's a much more complicated past, and, and which is what I try and show in the book, that, that China has been so involved in the world through its entire history that even to think about China as somehow this place separated from the world by the Great Wall is a sort of fantasy that um, I think the Chinese leadership today likes to promote among Chinese. They want Chinese to feel special and apart from the world. But it's also how the rest of the world tends to look at China as well. We tend to put China behind the Great Wall to say, this is another civilization, another people, another culture. They don't have anything to do with us. And history shows us that that's simply not the case. China is the result of the world in, and in a similar sort of way, the world is the result of China. It's, uh, mm-hmm. There's been an ongoing interaction for centuries. And that's what I think um, both sides miss out by, by creating this thing called China, which is somehow self-contained and, and isolated from the world. Mm-hmm. This, this sort of... Um... Well, I mean, I, we, I would call it an or, orientalizing myth, except yes. that it, it seems that the Chinese love it too, um, that the a mysterious and inaccessible East. Yes. Um, and serene, the, the, serene and apart. And this gets me then to the second bridge between China and the world today, that um, when, I was, when I was a student, this is going back a long time, when I first went to China, I talk about that at the beginning of the book, China was isolated. Uh, Mao Zedong was still the chairman of the Chinese Communist Party. He ruled China. China was largely cut off from the world, although not entirely. But it was a place that was far away, that was distant, that was unfamiliar. Um, and uh, But it wasn't a place towards which most people felt hostile, I would say. I think people are back, if we go back to the 1970s, people knew that there was this thing called communist China. They didn't know much about it, but it was its own thing and it wasn't a threat. Today, worldwide, China is perceived as a threat. Um, and uh, I think in 2020, no more, uh, I mean, it, it, in 2020, it's more, it's more threatening than it's been in my entire career of thinking about China. And, um, that that's a big bridge to build at the moment. And I, I find that that's a very difficult bridge to build. But one that I, I would like to see if I can make some kind of a contribution. And for me, the way to do it is not necessarily to pick apart the politics of, of China in 2020. It's to try and go back and show what the depth of the past means 
for China today. Well, let's begin where you begin the book. Um, there's so much in the book, and as I, the metaphor I like to use often on this on the podcast is that this book is like biting a very large apple. It's hard to know where to begin. Um, but the best end, and we won't. We're going to just touch on certain certain points throughout the the narrative because there's just there's just too much to cover because we have to go back for, especially for Westerners, we have to go back to such a fundamental level of Chinese history to even understand uh, one of the material objects or the anecdotes that you're describing. So let's start with the, the curious incident of the map in the UBC archives, as Sir Arthur Conan Doyle might have pointed. Uh, could you, uh, could you describe a little bit of this, this sort of this family, this, the family tree of the, this map that a, a very yes. fortunate graduate student discovered? Yes. We have a quite a good uh, China collection at the University of British Columbia. It was largely acquired in the 1950s. We had an excellent uh, uh, historian of China who was himself from China, and he, he brought all kinds of great materials into our library. Well, about a decade ago, a graduate student here uh, found this map um, on, the, uh, on the open stacks, brought it up, and thought, oh, this is curious. And it was something that nobody seems to had ever looked at before. It was a wall map. So it's a huge thing. Uh, it's three feet by four feet in size. Huge wall map printed in the 17th century. It's a map of China. Um, so I became very curious about this and discovered that it, it's, it's, it looks like a map of China, but in fact, it's a map of the world. Um, it's showing places that are not part of China. And as I became more and more curious, I realized this map had to come from somewhere. The, the cartographer had to have had access to information about the world. And I slowly pieced this together and discovered that the map, to put it in, in simple terms, is a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy of a map that Ortelius drew and published in Europe in the 1570s. Now, to look at the map today, you wouldn't have the faintest idea that a European map maker was somehow at the um, head of the family tree. But as you piece it together, you discover, well, um, Ortelius created a map of the world. That map was brought by Jesuit missionaries to China. They showed, they redrew that map, showed it to Chinese friends. Chinese friends got very interested. They started making copies. These copies then got, then proliferated. And um, it's particularly in the city of Nanjing where all this is happening. Map publishers start publishing Chinese-looking maps, but based on information that they are getting from Ortelius. Now, the exciting thing to me in, in following this uh, history is that um, it does exactly what I wanted to do for the book. It says, don't look at something that you think is Chinese and say, oh, that's just Chinese. It belongs to its own universe. It's not part of our world. In fact, the object has come to us through this complex interaction of people inside China and people outside China. And this is what happens over and over again in Chinese history. And so it's what I try and emphasize in the book, that what looks Chinese is not a self-contained thing at all. It's, it's the result of this rich interaction with the outside world. So you link this uh, the the map then to two concepts, one of which is the title of your book, uh, and the other both of them extremely important to the direction of your argument. Uh, one mm -hmm. is uh, the great state, and the other is the concept of ten thousand countries. Could you explain them both? Yes. 
Great state is one of those concepts hidden in plain sight that nobody has ever noticed before. Uh, it's, it's a term that is used, for those of us who, who read Chinese history, it's a term that comes up over and over again. It's what Chinese states call themselves. It starts in the Yuan Dynasty, so this is going back to the 13th century when the Mongols ruled China. They called China a Da Guo in Chinese or Ikulus uh, in Mongolian. And the term is a very simple term. It just means big or great state. It's a term that Chinese states have used over and over for themselves for nine centuries. And in fact, what I realized as I kept bumping into this term great state is that it's a, it's a category. It's saying China is not just a state. The world has, is full of all kinds of little states. But China is a great state. That is, it's bigger it's more important, and it sits at the top of a hierarchy of states throughout the world. Now, for me, the importance of discovering or, or the importance of realizing that this, this concept of great state was meaningful was that it helped me understand chi how Chinese um, rulers have positioned themselves in the world. They understand themselves to be the rulers of the greatest state in the world and organize their foreign relations accordingly. So that it's very difficult for other states to approach this great state except as, um, except in deferential ways as smaller states approaching the larger state. And so this became the concept that I sort of pulled out of uh, all the material that I've been reading for over the course of a career to try and give Western readers a sense of, of, of how Chinese understand their position in the world, rather than being, uh, rather than priding themselves in being part of a world community, part of a kind of cosmopolitan world. Chinese have been trained to understand themselves as occupying the most important state in the world. And this is, this is then colored how Chinese leaders and how a lot of Chinese have viewed the world. So th this to me was an important, um, an important element. It's embedded there in the map because the, the title of the map is that suggests that China is a great state in the middle of 10,000 other states. The idea that the world is made up of 10,000 states is it's an old trope that goes uh, back several millennia. It's an idea that disappeared from Chinese consciousness but it comes back in the 16th century. As the first Europeans arrive in China, they tell their Chinese counterparts, look, there's, there's, there's hundreds of countries out there. It's not there's the, is that there is one great China and a bunch of little countries clustered around the edges, but in fact that there's a world of many, many countries, and China should probably think about reorienting itself to being one among 10,000 countries rather than to being the one country in the world. It, it was an intellectual gap that um, both sides found difficult to sort out. And that's part of the story that I'm telling in the book. Does, do 10,000 countries, do they in some way uh, exemplify anarchy or chaos? From a Chinese imperial perspective, yes. Um, Order emanates from heaven through the person of the Chinese emperor into his own state, his great state, 
And then as you get further away from the great state, as you leave the great state and go out into these little states beyond its borders, the uh, uh, things become more chaotic, less civilized. Um, you're, you're kind of wandering out into a barbarian wilderness. So there is that value judgment is built into this idea. And what, so what, what the, the Jesuit missionaries who first come to China are trying to do is, is to say, let's strip out these value judgments about what China is or isn't. Let's realize that every country effectively views itself as the center of the world. Every country is mistaken in viewing itself as the center of the world. And what we need to do in a truly international context is to recognize that all states have a place and all states are present. Now, at the same time, of course, the big states tend to dominate. China is a big state. It has a large population, enormous resources, and that makes it very effective, or it can be very effective as a player in, on the international scene. But it required this idea that the world is, in fact, many, many countries, and we all have a place. Uh, that's an idea that was hard for Chinese to start wrapping their, their heads around. Because in the past, yes, these had just been little unimportant barbarian countries, and you just sort of keep them at a distance. Uh, you don't engage with them. You don't get involved with them. You just try and placate them and, and hope that they don't bother you. Um, but as Europeans started coming into Asia, this, this worldview had to change. Now, as I, what I understand, um, the, certainly the current Chinese regime and, and, and previous ones would uh, ground this idea in the of the great state, certainly the mandate of heaven, in the sort of the first emperor and the first imperial dynasty. Um, you, however, suggest that well, not you suggest, you argue mm. that uh, we should see contemporary China as, as as far more of a successor of the Mongol age than of previous eras of empire. Um, why, why that? Why do you why do you argue that? It's a truism of Chinese history that China was unified in 221 BC under the first Qin emperor, as you point out. And that, that's a kind of a standard fact of Chinese history. Um, but what, what struck me gradually over time was that, in fact, through much of the first millennium and a millennium and a half of Chinese history, is that that unified state was as likely to fall apart as it was to stay together. So you'll have a you'll have a strong central unifying state that lasts for a while and it collapses. A new unifying state might come along, but there are times in which for decades, even for centuries, China is split up into other smaller countries. The the uh, the event that changes this history that 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 ends this period of China breaking up and coming together is when Kublai Khan invades and occupies China in the 13th century. Um, Kublai Khan comes from the Mongol steppe. He's the grandson of Genghis Khan. He has this idea of the, the need to unify the world under his rule. And this is, how the term, this is how the term great state comes into play, because the great state is the state that unifies the world. So Kublai Khan brings this idea in as he and his uh, Mongol confederates invade China, take it over, and he declares the founding of a... Uh, he takes a Chinese name for a dynasty and, and declares himself ruler. 
Well, this happens. He makes that declaration at the end of 1271. And from that point on, China remains this colossal unified state. It's the Mongols who are able to carry out this idea of unification that the Chinese themselves really hadn't been able to put into place. There are stretches where China is unified, but equally there are stretches when, when not. But after Kublai Khan, this idea of a unified great state becomes established as a permanent fact of China. So that's why I begin the book with Kublai Khan. He's the figure who, 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 who creates the past that is still shaping the present. I mean, you go back to 221 BC, that's an awfully long time in the past. It's, it's, really, it's really stories that people might want to remember, but it's not shaping what people are doing today. And for me, it's, it's, the, it's the Mongol takeover in the 13th century. That's what makes China the thing that it has become today. You write that the Chinese components of the Yuan great state were quite outweighed by the Mongolian. Um, what are some examples of that? What do you what some examples of that? What do you mean by that? One of the examples would be the role of the military. Uh, the Mongols were a highly organized, militarized society. And the military was what held the Yuan Great State together for the century that it ruled China. And I would say that the role of the military um, becomes central to the Chinese political process. Um, it weakens perhaps during the long stretch of the Ming Dynasty from the 14th to the 17th century. It comes back again in the 17th century. And really, it comes back again under the People's Republic of China. The, the head of the Chinese government is also head of the military commission, so that the civil ruler is also the ruler of the armed forces. And this is not uh, this is different than it is, say, in the United States, in which the the president is nominally the commander of chief, commander in chief. The the president of the Communist Party in China is at the same time the president of the military commission. So he's a military ruler at the same time that he's a civilian ruler. Uh, this is largely airbrushed from our understanding of China today, but I think it's there. And I think that's something that comes in under the Mongols that isn't there before. Another thing that comes in under the Mongols is this compulsion to constantly be pressing the outer boundaries of the great state outward as far as they can go. Now, Kublai Khan had no illusion that he was ever going to rule the entire world, but he spent most of his career pushing outwards wherever he could, into Southeast Asia, out to Japan. He failed miserably. He invaded Japan twice. They were both miserable failures, but he takes over Korea. He takes over northern Vietnam. He tries to take over the island of Java. He even tries to establish a Chinese presence in the Indian Ocean. So the part of the great state dynamic is this, this, this uh, the consideration of the possibility that the state should always be expanding. And there's a kind of an, this expansiveness is something that the Mongols introduced that I don't think was there under the original Chinese uh, dynasties. You um, begin that by speaking about uh, Kublai Khan's leopard, as I re referred to in the in the introduction. I was I was somewhat envious, I have to add, to see that the French referred to the book as the leopard of Kublai Khan, yes. um, which shows that the French do titles better than we do. It, it, <laughs> it's true. 
Well, um, but it yes. wasn't. It was a cheetah. We have to say it was a cheetah. Yeah. Uh, but you uh, could you describe that little uh, that little moment? What you see in that moment? What do you see? The fact that the the the, the importance of Kublai Khan hunting with yes. a cheetah. Well, the. I was captured by the idea of the cheetah, and and I use the term leopard because that's in the language of Marco Polo. Um, but it, Marco, there's a there's an illustration in in one of the French manuscripts of Marco Polo, so showing this leopard or cheetah sitting on the rump of Kublai Khan's horse while he is out hunting. Well, it so happens that one of the great Chinese painters of the 13th century. Liu Guandao did a painting of Kublai Khan out hunting, and one of his hunters has got a cheetah sitting on the rump of his horse. So I thought this is this is the this, this is the sort of thing that, as a historian, I'm delighted when I can find it. So you've got a you've got a French illustrator, anonymous, who pictures a leopard sitting on the back of Kublai Khan's horse, and you've got a Chinese artist doing the same thing. Now, why are they doing this? Well. Um, in fact, the Mongols did use cheetahs as hunting cats. They would take them out with them. Uh, the cats, of course, are faster than any other animal. They would hunt with them. The cheetahs would capture the prey, bring them back. These were cheetahs trained to hunt. Um, and this was a detail that captured both Chinese and European imaginations because Chinese never hunted with cheetahs before. So the Chinese artist who does Kublai Khan's portrait wants to put the cheetah in. He thinks this is an amazing story. And the French illustrator wants to do the same thing. So it's a moment at which both both ends of the Eurasian continent are fascinated by this, this idea. Now, it's an idea of otherness, if you like, that, that Europeans don't hunt with cheetahs, neither do Chinese, but Mongols do. And it was, a, it was, for me, just a way of kind of capturing this kind of simultaneous surprise that Chinese and Europeans were both feeling in the 13th century. And again, it, it just underscores my sense of the, 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 the degree to which what's unfolding in China and what's unfolding in Europe is unfolding in the same time. It, it's, it, it's happening in real time, and to some extent, they are sharing each other's experiences. Um, you write, the Mongol conquest did not just put the country under the control of foreigners, it brought the world into China. And you're referring to sort of this hunting party, which involved Marco Polo, an African eunuch, the black beater, even the great Khan himself became part of the history of China in ways that no one standing in the shoes of the Song dynasty could have predicted. Yes. And I would say in ways that Chinese today are not much disposed to recognize as their own. Yes. Well, China's had a difficult relationship with with uh, invading foreign powers. Um, I suppose every country in the world has, but uh, the, the Chinese impulse, the, the, the educational impulse in China today is to just airbrush the periods of, of foreign occupation. These periods have been long and sustained. The Mongols were there for a century in the 13th, 14th centuries. The Manchus were there for three centuries from the 17th to the beginning of the 20th. The Japanese were only there for eight years. But there has been this recurring uh, pattern of foreign occupation. Now, why is this? Well, one of the reasons, one of the possible reasons is that China is so big. It's hard to defend a country that exists on China's scale. It's, it's when you're big, you are vulnerable. 
and China again and again has been vulnerable. But and the, the point that I, I, I this this brought me to the the idea that really since the middle of the 13th century, China has been more often ruled by foreigners than by Chinese. Hmm. The effect of this, though, has been to make Chinese today allergic to the idea of any possibility of collaborating with or working with foreign powers. It's made them allergic to any kind of external threat. So, so it's a kind of schizophrenia because the country, the country as it is today, has been constructed through the through, through the um, inputs of Mongols, Manchus, and others. And yet all of that is forgotten in this desperate attempt to, to make to turn China into something that's purely Chinese. And the, of course, this is something we see globally at the moment. Um, Russia, Hungary, um, the United States, um, the large countries of the world all want to think of themselves as a kind of unified, pure national identity that stretches back into the past and comes right up to the present. These are all fictions. Um, the world is a much more, a much more of a mongrel uh, uh, place than, than, than we tend to think. So, so by trying to, by emphasizing the impact of foreign occupation, I'm both trying to uh, get Western readers to realize that China has just been open to the world for all these centuries, and at the same time to encourage Chinese to realize that that they too need to see that, that they're part of the world and they're shaped by the world. They're not shaped by some closed Chinese tradition that, 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 that is loyal to itself and, and takes account of nothing else. They are, part, they are part of the world. China has been created by the world. Well, speaking of being open to the world and the effects of the world, um, that sort of brings us naturally to the Black Death. Um, commentators in both Europe and the Middle East, uh, people like Ibn Battuta, Ibn Alwardi, Gabriel de Musis, Thomas of Walsingham, very different people, as you can tell by their names, all believed that the Black Death, as they knew it, the bubonic plague, as we would call it, that it had originated in China. Um, they're very. It's interesting the unanimity on this amongst the people in the West, broadly understood. Um, did it? Um, did China experience the bubonic plague, and how might we know that? I I decided to write about this topic because it's one of those truisms that goes back all the way to the 14th century, and you you find it in uh, history textbooks today that that the Black Death started in China, and I thought, well. If the Black Death started in China, here's a great uh, example of how China and the world are interconnected. That is, if, if, if the plague blew up in China and then spread outward to the world, this, better than anything, shows how much China was part of the world. Uh, in fact, um, the further I got into the topic, the more I realized, well, it, it's a fascinating topic because... Um, because of the advances that have been made in genetics over the last 20 years, it's now possible for um, archaeobiologists to go back, find human DNA in burials, and from that construct the DNA of, 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 the, of plague bacteria, and from that then build a map of how the plague moved around the world. Um, and so I've been I've been following all of this with great interest and thought, wouldn't it be great if we could tell the story of the plague 
Uh, it's a global story. The plague goes everywhere in the world. So what place has China got in that story? Well, um, what I came up with was the, the plague probably is native to Kyrgyzstan and that it spread into China and it spread into India. It spread into Europe. It spread around the world and it starts in Kyrgyzstan. Now, the agents of that are, again, the Mongols. So the Mongols, in the course of taking over China, in a sense, dragged China into Eurasia because the Mongols were a Eurasian political federation. They, they, the Mongol rulers were as far west as Hungary and as far east as Korea. They were everywhere. And so they're part of what, uh, what turns China into a place that is in communication with everywhere else. The fascinating thing, though, is that uh, to, to this day, we don't know whether the great epidemics of the 13, uh, uh, 1350s and 60s in China were, in fact, the plague. The, that archaeological work hasn't been done. But it, it seems as though it, it, it was the case, and that, that China and Europe both experienced the plague. Now, for Europeans, they're looking east, and this is a European habit that goes way back. When anything bad happens, it comes from the east. It doesn't come from the west uh, the South is protected by the Sahara Desert. The North has got the Arctic. Everything bad coming to Europe is going to come from the East. And that furthermost place in the East, um, thanks, to, uh, thanks to the writing of Marco Polo, the furthest most place in the East is China. So they're always, Europeans have always looked to China as the as the, as the, if you like, the Mordor, to use, to use uh, Tolkien's language, the Mordor of the world. This is where bad <laughs> things come from. And, um, and so I brought, that, I brought that into the book in part just to remind us, if I could, I do this very gently, to suggest that the, 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 the tendency today to blame China for everything is actually rooted in a kind of deep cultural stereotype that belongs to Western civilization, and that China may, in fact, be be something that it may be a problem. Uh, but we shouldn't just write it off as though that's where everything bad comes from. Um, and uh, the history of the plague has been written as one of these "it came from China" narratives. And uh, so, I just wanted to pick that apart and and find out what really happened. Well, let's move forward to the Ming Dynasty. And to a an inscribed um, pillar on the coast of uh, Sri Lanka. Um, what does that uh, describe to us about China's place in the world? There's been much concern over the last decade or two about China's expansion out into the ocean, and uh, in fact, China has been building a large container port slash naval based on the south coast of Sri Lanka. So um, I decided to go back to this particular incident at the beginning of the 15th century. And it's when a, a large Chinese fleet sail, arrives in Sri Lanka and um, is rebuffed and uh, takes the king hostage. I tell this story because it, it on, on the one hand, it links back to Kublai Khan. Kublai did the same thing. He sent a fleet to Sri Lanka as well. Uh, he invited the Sri Lankans to give him their most precious uh, Buddhist relic, and they managed not to do so. But um, since the time of Kublai Khan, China has pressured 
places in Southeast Asia and South Asia to 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 get in line to be subservient to China to be tributaries of China. And when the Ming Dynasty comes along, gets rid of the Mongols. It's a it's an indigenous Chinese dynasty. It does exactly the same thing. It follows the Mongol model of going out into the world and seeking the submission of the world to the Chinese ruler. Um, and the 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 uh, the link to the creation of the uh, of the Chinese naval base at Hambantota today on the south coast of Sri Lanka was just. Too, uh, too nice a coincidence uh, not to pay attention to. So I, I felt I had to tell that story. And again, it's, it's to get away from this idea that even the Ming Dynasty, the purely Chinese Ming Dynasty, was somehow a reversion to a, um, a, 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 an entirely Chinese model of China. In fact, it's a continuation of the Mongol model. And the arrival of the fleet in Sri Lanka was is, is testimony to the to the continuation of the Mongol idea of what China was. But yet the, the fleet stopped, eventually the fleet stopped sailing. And yes. Which, much has been made of that. Yes. Um, um, much has been said about the Zhenghe voyages. This is one of uh, the, the, first, the first and the third Zhenghe voyages go to Sri Lanka. Um, yes. And in the Chinese narrative, Zhenghe is this kind of ambassador of peace and good wor- uh, goodwill around the world. Um, in fact, he was engaged in a great state game. He was a servant of the emperor, and he was doing the emperor's bidding. Um, so I was uh, in this in that chapter. I'm challenging this this Chinese notion of a of a kind of peaceful expansion, um, and and at the same time trying to uh, trying to link. China back into into its Mongol past. The the voyages stop for a couple of reasons. One is that they are so expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one estimate is suggested that the deforestation of China was completed in the course of building all the ships that were being built and sent abroad. So the, these these voyages were extremely expensive. And after the emperor who who organized them died. The advisors in Beijing said, wait a minute, this is a crazy use of our resources. We should pull back. We shouldn't be doing this. And so, so they stopped sending those, those uh, ships overseas. Now, the, the, um, the interesting, there's an interesting bit of timing here is that as Chinese withdraw from the Indian Ocean in the 15th century, the Portuguese arrive. So you've got, you've got one great power moving out of the Indian Ocean. And then you have Europeans coming in, first the Portuguese, uh, then the Dutch and the English. So you have European powers coming into the space that the Chinese powers had withdrawn from. And this is, this is one of the d- dynamics of world history, the movement of these, uh, these large expansive entities into other zones and how, they, uh, and then how, that, uh, how that changes the, 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 the shape of the world and the local dynamics around the world. This is going on constantly. So this was an interesting moment to capture. Yeah, I, I, it occurred to me, and I'm glad that you didn't say this, that this is literally an example of ships almost passing in the night. <laughs> uh, yes. The, the fact that Portuguese arrived so close to the, uh, just a few decades yes. after the last and, of these voyages. And, and they it, would have been a very different confrontation between the two of them than it eventually uh, resulted. Well, it would have been interesting. The Portuguese, when they first sail into the Indian Ocean, they hear tales of 
great ships that had been there about 50 years earlier. And in fact, they're told they're white people on those ships. Mm -hmm. Now, this is from a South Asian perspective. Chinese are fair-skinned if you're coming from South Asia. So as far as the South Asians were concerned, they knew the Portuguese weren't Chinese. But here was another sort of light-skinned people coming into their world. And so they told them, well, 50 years earlier, we had some of those we had some white people in ships coming before too. Um, but the timing was such that Portugal and China do not meet in the Indian Ocean. They meet, they will meet in the South China Sea. And that, that's actually one of my favorite chapters, which I'm not going to skip because I want to make sure that I get every dynasty in here <laughs> uh, in some way, because I, I, this is, I think, important to your overall um, argument. Um, the Ming are eventually uh, aggressively removed by another group of northern barbarians, um, the Manchu. Um, how did uh, contemporaries experience that? How did they anal analyze, um, analogize that to the previous, to the uh, the Mongol, the coming of the Mongols? Well, it, it's it's not surprising that when they saw, well, they didn't see they when they first heard about the Manchus coming across the Great Wall or threatening them along the Great Wall and then crossing the Great Wall into China. Of course, they immediately thought back to the Mongols. And in a sense, they were right to do so. The Manchus are a kind of later version, if you like, of, of Mongol political culture. They're, they're ethnically distinct, uh, but one of the ways in which the Manchus become a powerful invading force is that they're able to ally with a lot of separate Mongolian peoples, bring them under their leadership, and then use this force of uh, superb cavalry to overrun China in the 1640s. So Chinese were right to think, oh no, it's the Mongols all over again uh, under a slightly different guise. Um, hmm. it, it, it came as a, a shock to Chinese to find themselves being overrun yet again. They'd been overrun in the 13th century, and here in the 17th they were being overrun again. I think part of the shock also was that China through the 16th and 17th centuries becomes a wealthy country, a highly cultured country, a highly civilized country. Um, literature blossoms, theater blossoms, art becomes um, uh, highly sophisticated and complicated and interesting. People are collecting. Uh, they're collecting objects from around the world. So China is becoming this somewhat cosmopolitan, well, cosmopolitan is probably going too far, but it's becoming a highly cultured and a highly wealthy space. And I think Chinese thought that that in some way maybe protected them against external invasion, but of course it didn't. What causes it all to go to hell is, um, is a severe climatic downturn and environmental collapse. This starts in the 1630s so that by the mid-1640s, China has experienced the worst droughts, uh, the coldest temperatures, and the greatest epidemics in centuries. They are, they are submerged by environmental downturn. And it becomes a perfect moment for the Manchus to then just come in, cross the Great Wall, and take the country over. And, and China finds itself defenseless against this force. And then for the next three centuries, the Manchus rule China. And again, with this kind of Mongol idea of the great state. The great state comes back 
Um, this is the posture that the Manchus take. The Manchus, like the Mongols, press outward along all their borders. They move into Tibet. They move into Xinjiang. They move down into Burma. They are expansive in a way that uh, the Ming hadn't been. But it re reintroduces the great state idea to China and becomes the dominant political uh, the political image for China for the rest of its history. Well, let's talk briefly about um, the Qing invasion of Tibet. Um, why? Why did they do do that? Um, oh. is, is it is it because it it, it why, why is Tibet necessary to the the their conception of what the great state is or and ought to be? Tibet occupies a, a well. Tibet in the 17th century occupied a kind of unique position in Asia. Tibet, if we go back to the Tang Dynasty, Tibet was one of the great world empires. It, it, it subsequently collapsed. But through the course of the 16th and 17th centuries, Tibet begins to reemerge not as a militarized political state, but as a religious state. And the, the heritage of the Dalai Lamas today uh, stretches back to the 16th century as Tibet was becoming this kind of holy place, particularly for Mongol people. Now, what this meant when the Manchus took power in China is that they saw themselves as the secular rules of, rulers of the world. But they also needed some kind of, um, of an identity that would show to the world that they were, they were kind of, uh, they were heaven sent uh, to rule the world. And for that, they needed religious legitimation. The most powerful religious figure in the 17th century is the Dalai Lama. He's under the patronage of the Mongols. So the Manchus have a problem here. They, they want to become, and in fact, they do become patrons of the Dalai Lama. But the Mongols are always there kind of jockeying against the Manchus in terms of their patronage relationship. So um, there is a, a Mongol upstart um, from, from, from Xinjiang who invades Tibet in the 1710s, takes over, and then wants to use the Dalai Lama as his kind of pivot to start to expand his power in Central Eurasia. And the Manchus just can't tolerate this. So what the Manchus do is they, they, they back another candidate for the Dalai Lama ship. They go into Tibet in 1720 put the other candidate uh, in, in the Potala, the, the, the palace of the Dalai Lama, and become uh, the protectors of the Dalai Lama. They need to do that. They're not so much interested in taking territory. What they're interested in is in the, the religious authority of the Dalai Lama. They need to control that authority to keep the Mongols under control. So, so initially, the Qing invasion of Tibet doesn't really isn't really part of a kind of territorial expansion. It's about how do you control political legitimacy? How do you gain political authority? How do you dominate your 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 partners slash rivals? So Tibet becomes this kind of pivot for controlling uh, inner Asia, and it's curious that. Even today, in 2020, Tibet still plays that role. Um, uh, it's that border across which Chinese troops were, were launching some unfortunate military adventures last night, I gather. Um, uh, the, Tibet is essential 
for and because of the Manchus and the Mongols, Tibet has become essential for China to control. And here again, this this kind of great irony that the idea of Tibet being an inalienable part of China is actually a Mongol and Manchu legacy. It's got nothing to do with Chinese culture or with the history of Chinese people. It's entirely yeah. a Mongol Manchu uh, concern, but it's become a, absorbed into the narrative of China today. There's a very uh, you have a very ironic uh, quote you have from a, a contemporary civil servant. I mean, not our contemporary, their contemporary, mm. that we have now brought the area back onto our map. Yes. Which, it had never been on the map. It had never been mm -hmm. on the map. And um, and Chinese, well, every, every culture likes to talk about maps. You want to see sure. where you are and who you are and what you own and what you possess. And so every time something comes onto the map, it then becomes an inalienable part of, of the great state. And you can't let it go. Because the moment you let something go, you've, you're not the great state anymore. Yeah, it's interesting though the the ways of expressing this. Uh, you uh, in the um, afterwards you um, allude to the fact that Russia, the United States, and China have all been continental expansionary empires. Yes, um, moving east and west, respect uh, as as they need. Um, you know, I know the literature of eighteen thirties, eighteen forties Americans pretty well. Mm -hmm. um, they don't see themselves as putting anything back on the map. Um, they see themselves as grabbing things that are brand new and interesting and fascinating mm -hmm. and expanding and expanding and expanding. There's an, there's an interesting idea, conceit, um, that these things, uh, from the Chinese perspective, that uh, these things sort of have always really been ours. They always wanted to be ours. Am I overstating this? Or? Uh, but, well, perhaps only slightly, but if you, if you were to... Uh, uh, if you were to look at the United States today, there is a certain sense in which all 50 states are seen as inalienable parts of the United sure. States. It's true. When the expansion is happening, this is all new. And in fact, I think, I think the Qing understood that too. I mean, the Qing takes over Xinjiang, the large Uyghur region in westernmost part of China. And in fact, they called it the new territories because they no Chinese state had ever controlled Xinjiang before. This, this happens actually in the wake of the, uh, of the takeover of Tibet. It's all part of consolidating their control over new territory. But once it's in, once it's been claimed, then it becomes part of the birthright of uh, the Chinese people just as much as Oregon or Hawaii has now become mm -hmm. part of the birthright of the American people. But what's, these what's are all, all of these great states, these large states, and the, the, the Security Council of the United Nations is populated entirely by countries that have expanded at the expense of their neighbors. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, let's finish with one, uh, I think this is your last chapter, um, the trial of Liang Hongzhi. Yes. Uh, who is a collaborator, a collaborator, a Chinese collaborator with the um, Japanese regime, which, as you said, uh, rules its part of China for just eight years. It's the shortest, perhaps, of these invasions. Um, but then you make the very arresting observation that all of the leaders of World War II China were collaborators, uh, which is not a way that I had think, thought of it before. And of course, it's absolutely right in one way or the other. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek, um, Mao, mm -hmm. all of them 
are having to collaborate with outside powers in order to gain what they want inside of China. Could you draw that yes. out a little bit more? Yes. Well, World War II, by my uh, by my understanding, World War II begins when Japan invades China. It doesn't begin uh, when Germany uh, expands out of its borders. It begins when Japan expands out of its borders, and because. Each conflict then sets up the, uh, what's going to follow. Now, China at this point, China in 1937, is, um, is a country that's trying to rebuild after a disastrous two decades, economically disastrous, um, politically confused. China's trying to rebuild. And um, it's got Japan comes in. Some Chinese decide they'll work with Japan. Uh, the United States is ready to help counterbalance Japan, so some work with the United States, and the communists are, are willing to work with Russia, uh, the, at that time the Soviet Union. So um, China is in a very weak position and divides its loyalties up among these, these various contending powers. Uh, the Japanese, of course, lose badly, and so anyone who worked with Japan finds himself branded a collaborator. If you worked with the United States, you're branded a national hero. That is until 1949 when the communists come in, and then you're, you're also a collaborator and a traitor. And if you worked with the Soviet Union, then you are, are a hero. So the stories we tell about who is who's a hero and who's a villain very much depends on who wins and who loses. And, uh, and I was interested in Liang Hongzhi just because he, he's not an impressive figure by any, by any standard, but he was a Chinese who was trying to use Japan to, 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 to get China on its feet again. And it was a disastrous failure. And perhaps he should have been punished for it, as indeed he was. But he had a defense, which is, we were in a terrible position, and I did what I did in order to try and reestablish the country and restabilize the country. And it's the argument that Chiang Kai-shek could make for working with the U.S. and that Mao Zedong could make for working with the Soviet Union. It's just Liang got caught on the wrong side of history. He he was he collaborated with the wrong people at the wrong time. But I, I offer that just as an insight to suggest um, the judgments of history are are um, they're not random, but they depend on outcomes. And if you're on the wrong side of the outcome, the judgment goes against you. You uh, write arrestingly. The post-war era lasted longer in some places than in others. In China, arguably, it hasn't ended. Um, what do you mean by that? Um, what I mean is that the 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 sense that the Chinese government, the, the the sense of the Chinese government, and indeed of the Chinese people, that they deserve to be what they are, is still told as in terms of the victory, China's victory in the Second World War, and this has been something that. Uh, uh, that the American president has been using re recently in his own speeches. You, you go back to the Second World War, and that justifies anything you have done since 1945. So China is still telling that story, that defeating Japan is what allows China to be what it, what it is and what allows China, what authorizes China to do whatever it needs to do in order to protect itself. So in that sense, both the United States and China are still caught in this post-war era where the only the final moral justification is for what you did back in the 1940s. Well, the 1940s were, what, 70 years ago now. 
And yet we're still... Don't forget Russia. Russia feels the same way. And you're absolutely right. Russia feels the same way. And and it's a way to protect you against scrutiny. You adopt a policy that is unpopular, is undemocratic. Um, You say, well, we have have the right to do it because we defeated uh, Germany in the 1940s. And it's... it's, um, it's 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 unfortunate because I think the world needs to be looking forward. We need to be finding institutions that will enable us to coexist peacefully with each other. But every time you look back to World War II, you're looking back to some way that says there are enemies out there and we must strengthen ourselves against them. And that I think is very unhealthy and is not it does not but, show a path forward. But isn't in, in the case of um... China and isn't this sort of a part of a policy of of of, of a diplomatic uh, um, stratagem against Japan in this in oh, the yes. sort of the in the Xi Jinping era? I mean right. to say, oh, yeah. you know, the people are very very upset with what you did to Nanjing. Right, and um, and so no, yes. we really can't we really can't control them. So by and and uh, the Japanese be- army behaved in a truly atrocious fashion in China. So you can understand the the outrage, but. Yes, it's a it's a device that allows China to compete with Japan. Japan in the 1960s and the 1970s was the preeminent power in, in East Asia. It no longer is. China has now pushed it into the shadow, and it's used the memory of World War II to do that. Um, and at the same time, it allows the Chinese state to... Um, to interfere in Hong Kong, to interfere in Taiwan, um, to interfere in places beyond its borders, and say to itself, "This is our. This is the, this is our right. This is we have been we have been endowed with the right to do what we are doing by virtue of the fact that we defeated, defeated Japan in 1945." Mm. Let's. Um as we tie this up, uh, conclude, I just wanted to ask you about your use of material objects. You're not a historian of material culture, I don't think, and that sort of in a in a more narrow sense. And yet in many of your books, and especially in this one, you, you're dealing with leopards and maps and mm-hmm. portraits, and you're doing readings of portraits as if you're an art historian with a license and everything. Um, so what's this interest in, in, in material objects? Because I, I admire it very much. And uh, I think it's something that uh, other historians should be doing as well. Well, thank you. I, material objects are important to me because they are a way of being very concrete. That is, rather than talking about some grand idea about how China might relate to the world, let's look at a particular object. Ideally, an object that is moved between China and the world, either into China or out again. Let's look and see what that thing is, because that thing was produced at a specific moment of time by real people. It's exchanged as a real object among people. It's almost the closest we can get to the past. I mean, we have no, we're in 2020. We can't possibly get back to 1280 except by having a painting from 1280 in front of us and looking at it. And that's as close as we're ever going to get to the past. So I like using paintings. I like using vases. I like using any object that will almost be a kind of crystallization or almost an asteroid thrown down by the past into our past so that we can look it up. We, We can look at it. We can pick it up. We can say, wow, 
That was created however many centuries ago by real people. And here we are interacting with the objects that they have left with us. So that's why I like material culture. I enjoy doing that. Um, just to conclude, um, at the begin at the um at the beginning of your conclusion, you have the um, really would make a great absurdist movie. I wish Groucho Marx was around to do it uh, about the various uh, small Pacific Island nations who then China and Taiwan try to line up on their side uh, to sort of uh, solve the one China to China problem. Um, and then you observe that it's the, the this problem exists. This one China to China problem exists thanks to the enduring fixation on unification as a Chinese ideal. It is an ideal that every regime since the one great state has had to declare as its guiding light. Um, and in fact, they then project it backwards as well, as I, I think we've already discussed. Um, so is that what we should uh, we should be taking from uh, your book as we try to build a bridge between this, the rest of the world and contemporary China? The realize, realization that this idea of an isolated China, China alone, uh, and a unified China are very are provisional, if at best, if not fictions at worst? I think you've said that better than I could. I think that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to show that China is a constantly changing artifact of its history. And rather than treating China as a kind of absolute entity unto itself, it's part of the flux of history. And it's part of the flux that the world is constantly in. So that um, rather than rather than make appeal to any sort of grand ideas as though these are real, we should be seeing how people treat each other, how how countries treat each other. We should be looking at the at the uh, reality of the lives that people live, not the ideas that they are supposed to submit themselves to. But I think you've said it better than I could. My guest today has been Timothy Brook. He's the author of The Great State, China and the World. Tim Brook, thanks so much for being part of Historically Thinking. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for the conversation. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page, where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Runat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week. 